to uh, make your way back to your seats. I want to share a story with you. So I took uh, time off last summer just to recover from some burnout, and I've made some changes to how I structure my weeks and making little tweaks here and there, adding things, taking them away. Um, and one of the things that I changed about Sunday morning is that after the service on Sunday, I don't go home anymore. Um, I go right to the gym, and I spend time exercising, and then I spend some time in the sauna, and I just use that as a, as a, as a time to sort of sit in, uh, maybe it's a, something from the message. It was really awesome last week to be able to have uh, Deanna share, and I could just go in the sauna and reflect on it, and I take that time to pray and use it as a transition space. I exercise to kind of get the kinetic stress out because Sundays are like a big, intense day for me. I was processing a lot last Sunday. Uh, Deanna's sermon, I thought was awesome. Rick's departure was still front of mind. Last Sunday was the first Sunday that I prepped for Sunday without any input from Rick and engagement. So that sort of felt like a new dynamic that I was trying to get used to. And just praying for our church. There's just different things that are happening. And there's always opportunities opening up and closing and just wanting you to hold that together. And so I was really looking forward to, I mean, I know it's a public space, but the sauna on Sunday mornings at around noon is usually pretty much empty. And it was. So I was like, oh, this is sweet. This is like my little prayer closet. I'm going to be in here for a little bit. Um, so about three minutes. There's no way it was, I was in there for more than 180 seconds. And this, this guy comes in. No problem. I'm, I'm sitting up top to get the most amount of heat. He comes and sits up top, kind of, you know, one space over from me. Just mentions how hot it is in here. And he's about my age. And I'm like, yeah, totally. I, I didn't say anything, you know, trying to be kind, but also like, this is like my private <laughs> time. Wasn't feeling particularly chatty. I'd set my mind and heart to reflect and pray. Two or three minutes goes by, nothing. Then he says, oh, you mean, he makes some small talk comment about the lifeguards and how they need to patrol these areas because he's heard of people who have fallen asleep and then you know died in these things and so they need to patrol and I'm like oh yeah yeah no it's definitely important <laughs> three or four minutes goes by I'm thinking about Deanna's message I'm praying for Rick and Karis and the kids and, and then he turns to me again we're this is like crazy hot I'm already sweating I'm half naked. It's just the two of us in there. And he turns to me and he says, so what do you think the meaning of life is? Uh, and I, I think I said, I can't, it was a little shell shock, but I think I said, oh, wow, do you always drop that bomb on strangers in a, in a sauna? And he kind of laughed and he goes, you know what? I just, I'm not for small talk. I, I just... I'm a wisdom seeker. I want to understand life. I want to seek out wisdom. I'm like, why? That's, that's actually pretty, pretty awesome. And uh, I said, yeah, kind of where are you at on that? He kind of shared some vague things. Then he readjusted, came and sat down at a lower level so we could have more of a face-to-face. -face. And then he was quiet for a bit. And I said, um, well, I said, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I'm a Christian. And I said, so my sort of elevator pitch would be the meaning of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That would be my, I had to simplify it. That's where I would go. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. He was silent. He was like, huh. 
enjoy him forever. There's about another 30 to 60 seconds, and I just kind of let it hang there. And then he kind of shared that he had grown up. He didn't give me too many details, but he'd grown up in a context where he felt the main thrust of the Bible's message came down to that the heart is deceitfully wicked, that people are thoroughly sinful. And he didn't quote it, but he's referring to Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And he was like, I didn't agree with that. And then he went on to express some kind of new age, new thought ideas around divinity of the self, um, the idea that sort of we're all little gods, we're all participating in the grand consciousness that is source and universe. And he was a nice guy, and um, he didn't ask me too many counter questions, but I just sort of sat there listening. And, and um, as, the, as the conversation was coming to an end, I had to go and pick up my daughter. I said, hey, you know, like, here's my number, here's my email, reach out to me. I'd love to keep this conversation going. And <clears throat> right near the tail end of the conversation, he, he just, he, he made a remark, and again, he wasn't quite this precise with it, but he was referring to this idea that within all of us, we have this source of light, the source of God consciousness, and that's what he believed Jesus uh, taught and was trying to help us access and that more popularly is sometimes referred to as Christ consciousness. Has anyone heard that term before? Like just by show of hands, Christ consciousness. Yeah, it's, um, it's sort of this very mystical, vague term that refers to accessing a spiritually evolved state where we observe the life and message of Jesus and how we understand it is he's teaching us how to access a life that is defined by the characteristics of love and devotion and courage and surrender. But anything much more precise, when you start to drill down into loving what, um, being in surrender to what, it gets pretty vague and murky. And Jesus, in this view, is often selectively quoted by people who are influenced by New Age or New Thought, which is really prevalent in Nelson. And so I, I wanted to piggyback on this experience that I had last week to kind of share some thoughts on this. Because when I have spiritual conversations with people in Nelson, kind of these ideas about Christ consciousness and source tend to come up a lot. In this view... That, in a sense, Jesus is trying to teach us how to access the divine light within. Mystical scholar Andrew Harvey writes this. He says, Jesus came to exemplify the divinity of every single human being and to give to the human race the outrageous possibility of direct divine revelation with God. A direct Gnostic, and that's a fancy word that means kind of secret and very mystical, very difficult to describe, but a very powerful and personal ecstasy, sense of release and relief and awakening, which would also be an ecstasy of service and justice. So according to this view, just based on this quote, what is Jesus's purpose? Why did Jesus come? If you were answering it from this point of view, what's, what's the main point? Yeah, Jesus has come to reveal to us, to show us, 
that we are little gods, that we are much more powerful than the illusions that we've adopted have led us to believe, and that we can have direct connection to God or with source, and that will produce an ecstasy, a life that is defined by overwhelming abundance and joy and bubble over into kind of like a spiritual utopia where there's service and justice is just flowing naturally out of our hearts because we're connected um, to our source as divine. And again, this, this idea is wildly popular for many people. And some Christians even believe a, a version of it. It can be connected to kind of oneness theology. All is one, and, and life's about living in the now and letting go of the past and the future, being connected to spirit or source or the universe. Um, when you hear people talk about God or their universe or consciousness as a source of love and healing and nothing else, nothing, definitely no wrath or judgment, and nothing that's even remotely negative. If there is a God, if there is a higher consciousness, it's simply just healing and love. People seeking really strong personal mystical experiences, even using drugs like ayahuasca to like open their third eye or their divine consciousness. God is increasingly viewed by some of these people, and I've had these conversations with a lot of people, with it all refer to God, and then they will refer to what I was saying, and what they will say is, oh, Jeff, that's really neat when you encountered your higher self and you had this realization. So for them, God is, is it's kind of like patting me on the head, like, I know you think it's a God, but it's really just your own higher intelligence, intuition, spiritual something or other. It's framed differently. And with this view comes the idea that the answers are found within us. That's why so many new age and new thought and mystical practitioners are always kind of beating on the drum of look within yourself, look within yourself, because that's where the source of your salvation will come from. You are the source and the solution to your problems. They lie within you. And it's about getting past the lies and often many of the institutional religious lies that have told you that you are not this powerful, that you're not a God. And by accessing them, you can ascend the ladder of greater awareness, greater spiritual awakening, and then unlock the power of your divine spirit. The key idea that serves as the foundation through all of these things, and it was something that even though my friend in the sauna was talking around, it was the through line that held everything together, was that his insistence that every human being is divine. And that life's purpose is to climb this ladder of awakening. He called that the pursuit of wisdom and ascend to a state of godhood, to live into your divinity. Now, part of the reason why this view is popular and even tempting for some Christians is Jesus gets quoted and pulled into this conversation as one of the proof texts for the fact that this is true. Jesus is often quoted by New Agers who hold these views. And my sauna friend shared, he, he didn't quote the chapter and verse, but he knew that he said, didn't Jesus somewhere say, you are God's speaking to people, you are God's. And he's right. Jesus, those words come out of Jesus' mouth in John chapter 10, verse 34. And so you can imagine if people are unfamiliar with the Bible, and specifically the Gospels, unfamiliar with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
then hearing someone proof text such an interesting, provocative idea, Jesus said that we are gods? Wow, that's crazy. That totally subverts everything that the church has told me. This is like a new revelation. We can not only become seduced into thinking this is a good idea, but we can go one step further and think, oh, this actually is like biblically grounded. If this is something Jesus confidently proclaimed, maybe we've missed something as Christians. So what is it with this weird statement that Jesus says in John 10, 34, you are God. I want to break it down because it's a great example of why it's important to know your Bible enough, especially the New Testament at least, so that when someone says something, there's at least a spidey sense that goes off where you're like, uh, I'm not, I have to look, I don't know if that's, hmm, I can look into that. <laughs> but there's not a reflexive, if someone's saying something confidently to you, well, Jesus taught this, John 10, 34, you are God. You have the ability to say, yeah, I know that's what that says, but I don't, I think I've heard or I've read, I don't, that, mm, I don't, I think there's something off there. So this is a good case study so that people can't manipulate you, so that people can't negatively influence you, so that they can't control you or deceive you with ideas that sound, again, really empowering, really hopeful, but will actually lead you away from the abundant life that Jesus offers you. Okay, let's look at the context for what Jesus says. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 10. I encourage you to open your Bibles or there's the notes in your in the sermon notes, so you can jump all the way, um, you can jump down to verse 34 and say, yep, Jesus says, I have said you are God. But as you can see, there's a whole context around here of what's happening. The festival of dedication was happening in Jerusalem. That was to recognize and honor the God's miracle that was celebrated at, at, uh, through Hanukkah a number of uh, centuries before. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade, and the Jews who were gathered around him said, how long will you keep us in suspense? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Like, just give us the straight goods. Are you claiming to be the, the, the coming Messiah of God? Jesus said, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. And the works that I do testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep Listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Right? Huge claim to divinity. I and the father are one. That's why in verse 31, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, to kill him. He's claiming to be on the same level as God. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And they say, we're not stoning you for good works that you've done. The healings, the miracles, the helping. That's not why we're stoning you, but for blasphemy. Because you, even though you're a mere man, you claim to be God. So that's pretty clear so far. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Jesus said, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture can't be set aside, 
What about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. So that's a really dense, nested, complicated, uh, even phrasing of what he's doing. But I want you to understand that he's quoting from Psalm 82. And that's the key to understanding why Jesus is responding the way he is. So they're like, we're going to stone you because you are claiming to be God. And Jesus says, but it's written in your law in the Old Testament. I have said you are gods, and the I means God. So if we go to Psalm 82, if you flip over there in your Bibles or look on the sheet, it's not a very long psalm. I want to read it because, again, it helps you to understand what Jesus is pulling from. Psalm 82 says God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. And most of your translations will have quotations there because the word there is Elohim which is almost always used to reference God. It means mighty or powerful one. It's the generic version in Hebrew for God. You know how we might say like there's like, if someone says, I believe in God, like you don't necessarily know if they believe in like the biblical God because God's a vague term. Elohim is a vague term. If someone wanted to say in the Old Testament, I believe in the biblical God, the true and living God, they would say, I believe in Yahweh. That's the name, that's the precise name of God. I don't just believe in a God or gods, I believe in Yahweh. Just like we would say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I don't just have a vague belief in a God. The word here is Elohim, and that's used almost exclusively when referring to God, but it can be used to refer to angels, and sometimes it's used to refer to people who have God-like authority to make laws and decrees that influence people's lives. God sits in this assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. And God says to these rulers, these principalities, these powers who are not gods in their divinity, but they have authority through the government to make binding decrees. He says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And he says, the gods or you gods, you know nothing. You understand nothing. You walk in darkness. And I've said to you, he's talking to these human leaders, judges in Israel, and maybe some believe other nation leaders, but certainly the judges in Israel. I've said to you, you are gods. I've given you godlike authority. And you are all sons of the most high. You have a special elevated status because of your authority but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So this psalm is a judgment psalm that God brings against those who were given lots of authority and power. They were gods, lowercase g, not because they were actually a different grade of human being, but because they had an outsized amount of power to influence the world. Right? You and I, there's no one in this room who would be classified as a capital or a lowercase g god. Right? But if you were running the country, you could say, oh, the person who runs the country or makes certain decisions has godlike powers. And in the Old Testament, you would refer to those people as an Elohim, as a mighty one. They're a powerful one because they can institute attacks and now, boom, everyone's suffering. They do exhibit a kind of godlike authority, but God is saying here, 
I gave you that authority, but instead of using it to help the weak and the vulnerable and to help everyone prosper, you've simply just leveraged it for your own self-serving agenda. And he says, you will come to nothing. The psalm is addressing human judges who have been given authority to administer justice. The gods that are referred to in this psalm are not little gods, micro-gods that are still very powerful but that are subservient to God. They are human rulers in positions of judgment and power. So now let's go back to John 10. When Jesus quotes this passage... He's responding to the Jews accusing him of blasphemy. How can you say, Jesus, that you are God, that you are the Son of God? And Jesus says something really clever. He says, okay, well, first of all, in the scriptures that you guys know, God called those with just extra human authority gods. He said, you're all my sons. But now I have come to you. And I've displayed that I have greater authority than those judges. So why is it inappropriate for you to call me a God? And if God referred to these people who have power as all of you are sons, and I've displayed a greater power through my miracles, through the teaching of my authority, why is it wrong for me to call myself the son of God? So it's this very clever way of diffusing this desire to kill Jesus. It's a how much more argument. He's saying if God, if Yahweh called these people in authority Elohim, and I actually am the Messiah, the singular anointed one, why would it be blasphemous for me to call myself an Elohim or the son of God? He says, God sent the word to these people and they were called God's Jesus is inferring, I'm the word made flesh. Like I'm the full revelation. So I'm well within my rights to claim to be God. So I want you to think about this. What is Jesus definitely, definitely, definitely not communicating when he quotes and says, you are God's? What's he definitely not saying? He's definitely not saying, oh, like you, everyone in this room, you're God's. It's part of a different argument where he's trying to establish his own divinity, that he is unique and he is king of kings and lord of lords. This is about Jesus highlighting his own uniqueness and his own divinity, not ours. But if you just pull out verse 34 and say, well, didn't Jesus say you are gods? It's an amazing example of taking a verse completely out of context and then building what you want to be true around it and people going down that path and investing all kinds of time and energy money on trying to awaken and access the divine within when that is completely counter to what Jesus invites us to. And we know that because there are people in the Bible who the Bible says thought of themselves like God. There's a few in your notes. I'm just going to talk about the, king, uh, the ruler of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. Say this to the ruler of Tyre, God says to Ezekiel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. Then God says to the ruler, but you're a mere mortal. Though you think you're as wise as a God, 
And then there's a judgment. He says, because you think you are wise, because you think you are as wise as a God, I'm going to bring all these judgments against you. And ultimately, I'm going to bring you down to the pit. You will die a violent death. There's a few other references to look up. But one of the key ones would be Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, when Satan goes to Adam and Eve. And what's the core temptation that he presents to them both when they're like, oh, we, we can't eat the fruit? What does Satan say? He says, well, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because God knows that if you ate the fruit, what would happen? You'd become like God. The, the very first temptation in the Bible is to not trust God because God is trying to hide your, trying to withhold and suppress the power that in a sense is your birthright. God is withholding something from you. You could become like a God if you ate this. Everywhere in scripture where people try and ascend to Godhood to see themselves, to operate out of a posture of Godhood, we see judgment and judgment and judgment again and again. And you can look at the other references there. One of the things that's really distinctive about biblical orthodoxy, ortho, right, doxy teaching, right teaching, is that God is holy, holy, holy. And that means God is distinct. He is not like us. We are not like God. One of the most important distinctions in all of reality is the creator-creation distinction. There is the creator. Everything else is creation. And that completely flies in the face of a oneness theology that would say, well, we are part of the universe. We're part of God becoming aware of ourselves, itself, herself. No, there's a distinction. There's God. Then there's everything else. That God is not just holy, not just separate. Holy, holy, holy. We'll get to that scripture in a second. But Isaiah 45, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God, capital G. There are people with power. There's no one on my level. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not yield or share my glory with another or share my praise with idols. And then in Isaiah 6, where this idea that God is holy, holy, holy comes from, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees this vision of God. And it's like the veil where, where God, I mean, God's always dealing with us often through a filter because there has to be restraint because his glory is so powerful. It would sort of obliterate us. And Isaiah gets that veil kind of open to him. And he sees the cherubim, uh, sort of the seraphim, worshiping God. And it says day and night, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at Isaiah's reaction. Verse five, he says, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm ruined. I'm, I'm like melting away. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. Isaiah has this powerful, clear, high-resolution, surround-sound experience of the presence of God. And his reaction is not, oh, I recognize that. That's me. That's, I, I connect with that on a soul level. He says, I am undone. Woe is me. He wants to hide. 
whenever there's a disclosure of God, it is always, I mean, sometimes it's joyful, often it's scary, but it is always humbling. No one in the Bible comes out of a genuine encounter with God or Jesus and says, huh, that's kind of like me. I'm, yeah, I, I have this grander view of my plate, my ontological um, place within reality. Everyone comes away humbled and they realize, oh, God is God. I am not God. In the whatever I thought, the, uh, the highest view of myself, th this is something holy, holy, holy other. Part of what the Bible makes clear is that if you have a genuine encounter with God, you will be humbled. You will recognize that God is God and you are not God. And sometimes it gets confusing here because people say, well, doesn't the Bible say somewhere like men and women are made in the image of God? Isn't that kind of like the same thing as saying like divine spark and we all are like a little piece of God? It's like, no, there's a distinction. God created humanity, gave them a special purpose. They're made in his image. They have a special calling. They have special responsibilities and capacities. That doesn't make them little gods. And Christians have the Holy Spirit within them, but that doesn't make you God. That makes you have access to the power of God to live a life of obedience to God and faithfulness to God. Now, for some of us on a Sunday morning like this, you can think, I don't know, this seems a little overly precise with language. Like, who cares? Like, what if, what if people are like, they have good hearts and they're open and they're just kind of like, they have this deep experience and they're like, they say it's God or source. Like, what's, what's the big deal? What's like really... What are the consequences of having an idea like we're all like a part of God and connected to God? Well, if you believe that, if you think that you are a God or that you can access or manifest God on your own, you don't need salvation. You just need awakening and you need awareness. And you are the solution to your problems. And that's a heavy burden to carry if you really believe that the problems in your life simply come from you not recognizing how to fix things. Well, get on recognizing it. Do it then. I mean, it sounds empowering, but it's a crushing reality to actually try and live out. If you think you are a god, then self-centeredness, self-absorption, and self-love, those are all virtues. Because you are honoring the divine within you. Right? That would make sense. And we see that more and more as people... I feel like every few months I read a new article by some kind of spiritual new age person that talks about the virtue of falling in love with yourself and prioritizing yourself and putting yourself first and self-love. That makes sense if you are a little God. And if you're a little God, then that's going to encourage self-reliance much more than any kind of dependency on a higher power. Why would you go to God and pray and ask and make yourself vulnerable when the whole point of that God in their view is to point you back into yourself? So it actually fractures and pulls you away from God, other people, from your own God-given, I would argue, identity and a mission about going and actually bringing and reflecting the love of God into the world. So the consequences for holding these ideas, even if they're kind of vague, they're pretty consequential. And my heart was heavy when I left that sauna. <laughs> um, my heart was heavy for my friend. And he hasn't followed up with me. I didn't get his contact information, but I, 
I hope that he will reach out to me because I appreciate his vulnerability. I love the fact that he wanted to bypass all the chit-chat and get right to the heart of the matter. But when we got to the heart of the matter, even the merest bump of saying, I actually don't think you or I or we as humanity that we're the center of the story. I think Jesus is the center of the story. And you won't understand life until you understand that and then begin to organize your life around Jesus. That was just, you know, wrenching the gears. Jesus did not come to say, you are God's. He came to say, I am God. You need me. You need my salvation. You need the regeneration by my spirit. Only I can save you from your sins, save you into a new life. I am the solution to your problems. I need to be the center and devotion to your life. And as you even imperfectly place me at the center and devote yourself to me, all the things that really matter in life that you're worried about, they'll find their place. You must learn to trust and follow me by reading my word, obeying my spirit, and not obeying the desires that seem right in your own eyes. See, Christianity is a radical departure from a life devoted to yourself, to self-exaltation and to self-gratification. That doesn't mean the Christian life is one where we pursue misery, where we cultivate self-loathing. That was kind of the sense I got from my friend. He'd just been taught sinner, 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 sinful. It's a wrong view of sin and a non-existent view of the fact that you are made in the image of God. Jesus loves you, died for you. God has a purpose for your life. You are valuable and important. You are beloved. It doesn't mean that as Christians we adopt some self-deprecating and overly pessimistic view of ourselves. If you think these things about yourself, then like my friend, you don't understand your value, you don't understand your purpose, you don't understand your God-given destiny that you are an image bearer of God. And if you are a Christian, you are a redeemed son and daughter in Christ. But what this does mean is that you're not the center of the universe. And as obvious as that might've sounded to people 10, 20, 30 years ago, there are people who move into their life as that being the foundation of their worldview. I'm the main character of this story. And that is a corrupted and distorting and polluting way to live. It will lead you to a vacuous, um, spiritual, uh, it will lead you on a vacuous spiritual path, will alienate you from the things that matter in this life, and it will cut you off from the eternal life in the next. You are not the main character in the story of reality. You will only find your place and your purpose your joy, your freedom, your release, when you organize your life around Jesus, because he is the Logos. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So pastorally, if you, like my friend, have been playing with the idea that there is divinity within you, that you are a God, I really encourage you to repent, to turn from that view, because it's dangerous and it's destructive. Turn from that deception and turn to Christ. Step into the liberating freedom of not having to ascend to Godhood, but embrace the one who left the power and privilege of Godhood, took on flesh, went to the cross because of 
his love for you and your value to him to secure a salvation, to secure an eternal life that you can step into now and that will continue for on, on forever with joys and pleasures evermore. Let's pray. Jesus, to a culture that promotes self-exaltation and self-divinity, man, your, who you are, your teachings, Christianity, is such an offense. But it breaks us out of the illusions that we're the main character, that we are the solution to our problems. We declare that you are Lord and King. Forgive us for any ways in which we have played with the idea of an exalted view of ourselves. Show us who we are through revelation of who you are. You are holy, holy, holy. Amen.